have good audio. Good morning. It's good to have you guys here this morning. Thanks for coming out. We're very thankful for this place to meet this morning. It had gotten so warm that it was very difficult to meet outside, and we know it's uh, it's much more difficult with little ones as well meeting outside and for them to have no the heat. So, thanks for coming out. We can thank the Lord for this place and for the privilege God has given us to meet together. We have a great uh, privilege and opportunity in this country. There are many places in the world that do not have these kind of rights or privileges as given by the government or perceived by the government, and we're very thankful, we should be very thankful, that we can come together. What an important part of the body of Christ to come together not forsaking assembling together as the manner of some is because we need that intimacy we need that care for one another we need to see how one another are doing and who needs to be encouraged and when I need to be encouraged and uh, so it's really important thanks for coming out and thank those of you that are streaming we do recognize there are situations where it's very difficult to meet together right now and uh, we certainly respect uh, your decision, and we uh, are excited that you can join us this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, that we can call upon your holy name. Thank you, God, that you're a God of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. Lord, while you are a just and holy God, you extend mercy to all that believe in your name. And God, we give you praise for that. Lord, bless our time this morning. As we contemplate where we're at in this world today and what your word has to say about how we should live and what we should do, open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As you can see, the lyrics are right in front of you there. I believe those ones are on the left side. And we're going to sing the Father's Love. I guess we'll get you guys to stand this morning. Yeah. Stretch out your legs and open your lungs and sing at the top of your lungs so everybody in the hotel can hear you. <laughs> but it's definitely good to be um, in an air-conditioned environment this morning. Let's sing the Father's Love. been made. 
your love and ran from grace Despised and rejected all your ways How wonderful the Father's love The Father's love for us That He would send His only Son To come and rescue us He will save us Called us blameless Guides us now and will sustain us Oh, how wonderful the Father's love Your mercy floods our lives with kindness Your grace has colored all we see And you have promised not to sons of God and rest in the hope of what's to come. How wonderful the Father's love, the Father's love for us. That He would send His only Son to come and rescue us. He has saved us, called us blameless, guides us now and will sustain us. The Father's love Though sufferings may fill our lives We're confident, we're heirs with Christ And so we cry, Abba Father Though sufferings may fill our lives we're confident, we're heirs with Christ, and so we cry, I'm a father. How wonderful the Father's love, the Father's love for us. That He would send His only Son to come and rescue us. He has saved us, called us blameless, guides us now and will sustain us. Oh, how wonderful the Father's love. Amen. All right. You're coming up to Scripture, that's right. Just a just a quick there we go just a quick building update um, just so we know kind of where we are in the process it has been uh, a challenge to say the least uh, as we've worked through some of the uh, issues that the county has asked us to look at um, right now we are basically down to two issues uh, one pertains to the occupancy of the building the county saying one number which is way greater than what we're asking for so it's kind of this weird thing where we're saying no. We only want these number because it's based on the number of chairs. The county is saying, no, the building will allow this number of people. It's like, well, we don't want that number of people. No offense. You know, no offense. We would love. But, yes, we will grow to that point by God's grace. So we're working through that issue. Um, our architect is fully engaged on it. He's helping us. Uh, he's being very generous with his time, and we're grateful to him for that. 
Uh, the second issue has to do with a building construction issue as it relates to the, the, the second floor or the ceiling assembly in the building related to the second floor. So we're kind of working through how we're going to make the county happy with what they're asking us to do to relate or to conform to an interpretation of the code. And so without going into all the gory details, that's kind of what it boils down to, those two issues. So we've got a, an assembly of floor system, then we have, we want fewer people than the county wants us to have. Anyway, so that's, it. that's the building. Um, I met with the architects last Thursday, and uh, they put a response together. Um, there's some drawing changes being done. We're going to resubmit that to the county. And uh, unfortunately, you can't really have a sit-down meeting with the county. It has to be by phone, so there's not that kind of that one-on-one -on -one where you can read body language and so forth. But we're prayerfully optimistic that, uh, that this will kind of get us over the hump and we'll be able to move forward. I think the plan at this point is to meet here uh, in this location. The, the Country Inn and Suites has been just gracious to us from a cost standpoint. This is a great place to meet in the interim, and it kind of gives us a spot to uh, just land while we finish working through a couple little issues with the building permit. But as soon as the county says go, we're done. So we will be in the building. Oh, good point. We have the, the big sign, and it's big. The big sign that goes on the front of the building, it is in the building and ready to go up. As soon as we get that, that little piece of paper that says building permit, there will be three or four of us on ladders in the front of that building sliding that joker in place. So... Um, be prayerful for that and pray for our safety while we climb on the roof to put the, <laughs> put the sign up. So that's it. No, no. <laughs> no. 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 But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of, a, of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. All right, a mighty fortress is our God. I promise I'll let you breathe in between some of these lines. <laughs> let us sing. A mighty fortress is our God. Humble word never failing, our helper he and 
did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing we're not the right man on our side the man of God's own choosing dost ask who Thank you, Chris, for the update. I'll begin by saying I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. Rather than a typical kind of an expository message, we'll be looking at a number of different passages somewhat based upon what Chris read concerning what's called the rapture, the Latin word rapture, to be caught up together with the Lord uh, a reference to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it may be uh, preached a little different than you're used to, uh, but that's not going to be our main focus this morning. It's not so much about eschatology, although it relates to future things, but it's about how we should live 
in light of what's going on in the world because there is ongoing trials and persecutions just like I believe there will be during the tribulation period, uh, but also in light of what's to come, how should we live? So I'll begin with this. The second coming of Christ is the most awaited, precious event on the human calendar, especially when you take out into consideration that the first coming has already happened. At the first coming of Christ, he came as a lamb, in humility, riding on a donkey, he came to save sinners. At the second coming of Christ, he will return as a lion with power and glory and splendor, riding on a white horse to judge and to wage war. A scripture that's familiar to us, Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus combined the events preceding the second coming with the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem that occurred in 70 AD. And because of that, some believe that all these events in Matthew 24, at least most of them, were fulfilled in 66 to 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. However, there's a characteristic of some prophecies in the Old Testament and New where there's a short-term partial fulfillment, but a long-term complete fulfillment later. An example is a very familiar scripture to us. We're familiar with Isaiah 7:14, that says, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, that scripture in Isaiah chapter 7 is in the context with Isaiah speaking to Ahaz, but he's talking about his son, his son that would come. So it's very interesting. Some of that passage was fulfilled and has already been fulfilled by Isaiah's son. It was fulfilled in the short term, namely that in his day, in his son's day or Isaiah's day, the land would be forsaken by both her kings, according to verse 16. And that was certainly fulfilled from history, we know. From the word of God, we know that was fulfilled in Isaiah or Isaiah's son's time. But in verse 14, it wasn't talking about his son, not per se. Behold, a virgin, a young woman who is a virgin, an unmarried woman who is a virgin. That's the word there. Will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, Matthew quotes from Isaiah for showing the fulfillment in the birth of Jesus Christ. He quotes that very passage, the passage that the rest of the passage is talking about Isaiah's son, his second son, but that verse, that verse 14, he quotes it and applies it to Jesus Christ. These kind of prophecies wasn't unusual in the Hebrew scriptures, and they're not unusual in the New Testament. I believe we have the same thing in Matthew 24. We're not going to read it for the sake of time because that's not our primary point. But many of you know, we will refer to, many of you know the passage, we'll refer to much of it. But in Matthew 24, Jesus reveals what would happen prior to his second coming. 
the temple would be destroyed in the short term. But Jesus did not come back soon after the destruction of the temple. <coughs> Jesus said several things in this passage. He said that many antichrist and false prophets will come performing great signs. He said there'll be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, persecution. He refers to apostasy, lawlessness. People's love will grow cold. And there's another prophecy in this passage that's quoted from Daniel that's really interesting because it sort of had a short-term fulfillment in 168 B.C., So it had already been fulfilled in part, but it's complete fulfillment. As Matthew points out, as Jesus points out here, was still in the future. The partial fulfillment, it's it's called the abomination of desolation. The partial fulfillment was when the king of Syria, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, invaded Jerusalem in 168 B.C., made the temple an altar, the temple altar, excuse me, a shrine to Zeus and sacrificed pigs on it. So in one sense, the prophecy, or at least some could have said, that prophecy's already been fulfilled, but it wasn't fulfilled, not in its completion. Revelation 13 saw or looks ahead to that future fulfillment. Second Thessalonians 2 looks ahead Paul, and then, of course, in Matthew 24, it looks ahead. So although it might be considered fulfilled in part, it wasn't fulfilled in completion yet. And so we sort of have the same thing within this prophecy. But Matthew continues, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, (coughs) excuse me, stars will fall from heaven. All this occurring, it says... Before the Son of Man will appear in the clouds and gather his elect from the four winds. So it seems to be teaching in Matthew 24 that this is going to occur before the Lord recur, or possibly shortly before the Lord returns. Now, all these things were not fulfilled in 70 AD. The Lord did not come back. There are many prophecies in Matthew 24 that were not fulfilled. But they will be fulfilled. All of God's word is fulfilled perfectly. There may be sometime a short-term fulfillment and a complete, complete fulfillment that comes later. But they will be fulfilled perfectly. Maybe not according to our understanding, but in truth they will be, will be fulfilled. Now I want to take you to the books of First and Second Thessalonians. And this is a passage or a couple passages that might be a little different, at least the way I present them, than you're used to. Keith read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, verse 13 through 18, describing the catching up of believers to be with the Lord and the comfort that brings because he was assuring the believers in Thessalonica, that not only were they going to be caught up to be with the Lord, but those that had fallen fallen asleep, believers died, that had passed away, 
We're going to be caught up. Their bodies are going to be resurrected to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall they ever be with the Lord, Paul says. So it's that context we come to the next chapter. He's still talking about the same thing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, just after comforting believers with the promise of the rapture in chapter 4, Paul says this, continuing the same thought, verses 1 and 2, now as to the times and epochs, or seasons, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. He equates the catching up to the day of the Lord. And that's what I want you to see there. Here Paul associates the rapture of the church with the day of the Lord. As being a part of the day of the Lord. Paul continues in this passage teaching that the day of the Lord will not come as a thief in the night for believers. He's coming as a thief in the night for unbelievers. But as you continue to read chapter 5... It's not so for believers. We're not going to be surprised by his second coming. We're not going to be surprised by the rapture and things associated with it. The day of the Lord, or the day is sometimes referred to in scripture, is a phrase used, and it comes from the Old Testament. Remember how important it is. When you read something in the New Testament, make sure that you go back and get a grasp of it from the Old Testament scriptures. Because you cannot understand the context, the historical context, and the meaning until you understand the setting that it came out of in history as God had progressively revealed his revelation to people. So the day of the Lord, or the day, was used in the Old Testament, and it's used as well in the New Testament. But we have to understand its usage. It's a time in history, if you look back at those Old Testament texts, in which God would intervene in history. The Puritan commentator, Matthew Poole, writes this, The day of the Lord here and elsewhere, and in that day, will not be taken for a natural day, but for a certain period of time. He writes, Any imminent manifestation of God, either in works of mercy or in judgment, is called his day, in scripture so it can be a time in which god judges or which god shows mercy and we see that as we go back through all those old testament passages that deal with the day of the lord so in first thessalonians 5 and in other new testament passage paul speaks of the day of the lord as a future event that he will bring reward for some and judgment to others this day of the lord will bring judgment to some and reward to others. Now, with that in mind, let's jump over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll read the first two verses again. Again, Paul identifies the rapture with the day of the Lord. He says, Now we request you, brethren, verse 1, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So 
Notice Paul here refers to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. He connects these two things. What we perceive often to be two separate things, but they, and they may be, but there's a direct correlation between the two. It seems to suggest that the rapture immediately precedes the second coming. That's what I think. That's my personal opinion. I think it's just like in Jewish history, where when a king came to visit a new part of the kingdom, territory, city, or town, the people would hear about his coming, they would go out of town to meet him, and they would escort the king into town. That's what my suspicions are as to how it will occur. But that's my opinion. I think that this catching up is at the end of the trip, and I'm going to show you why in just a minute. And it immediately precedes him coming to the earth. I think we're caught up, and we come together with him. We're caught up in the clouds, and we come together with him. But there are people that disagree. There are good people that disagree with me on this. Some people believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, a mid-tribulation rapture, a pre-wrath rapture, and that's fine. But that's what I think anyway. But here, here again, just like in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul identifies the second coming with the rapture. Let's read it again, verses 1 and 2. You can see the correlation between the day of the Lord and the rapture. I, might, I think I said that wrong. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So don't worry about that this has already happened. The day of the Lord has not come. That's essentially what he's saying. So there's a definite correlation in both 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians between the rapture, the catching up, and the day of the Lord, as if they're somehow at least in part synonymous. Paul continues in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, stating that two things must come first before the day of the Lord. Let no one in any way deceive you, verse 3, for it will not come, it, the catching up, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God or God himself. He's talking about the abomination of desolation here even though the term is not used. So he says before the day of the Lord, two things have to come first. The apostasy of the church, which we're, it, it may not reach his, its crescendo. It may not reach the ultimate point of apostasy, but we're watching it happen today. It's been happening for many years. The apostasy of the church and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So if the day of the Lord doesn't come until the man of lawlessness is revealed, and the rapture of the church is associated with the day of the Lord, or is a part of the day of the Lord, 
or at the end of the day of the Lord, then that means the rapture of the church doesn't come until the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed. That might be different than what you've been taught. But I cannot, in my mind, disrespect the scriptures. It says what it says, and you have to study it for yourself. There's different views of eschatology. Make no misunderstanding about this. There are good men that differ on this. But I'm showing you why I hold the position that I do. I believe there's going to be a tribulation. I believe the Antichrist will come, and I believe that he will catch us up to be with him in the, in the air, and we will return with the Lord, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 again. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. I just want to remind you of that correlation. There's a correlation between the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming, and the catching up to be with him. I think what is important to believe is the basics of Scripture. We have it on our website. We have it in our doctrinal statement. Our doctrinal statement reads this. We believe in the personal invisible return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth and the establishment of his eternal kingdom. We believe in the resurrection of our bodies, the final judgment, the eternal joy of the righteous, and the endless suffering of the wicked. And I think that's a good summary of what it's important to believe. As far as our exact view of eschatology, of future things, we have room for grace we have room for differences in interpretation. But I wanted to show you in a brief synopsis what I believe and why I believe it. There are many believers today that believe that the coming of the Lord and the rapture are very near. It could be true. But we have to recognize that there's people throughout history in various circumstances that's also thought the same thing. We don't know. We certainly see certain things that seem to imply that certain things are coming. But God can turn things around overnight if it's not his timing. God is the one that's sovereign, and we trust him. So regardless of your view of eschatology, I hope that you will focus on what really matters. I hope you'll focus on the coming of Jesus Christ for his saints because God is faithful. But whether we're approaching his imminent return very shortly, whether we're going to go through the tribulation, the church has gone through tribulation throughout its history. It's going or experiencing tribulation today. You know, there's more people in the last 20, 30 years that's been martyred for the name of Christ than through all of church history after the first century. It's unbelievable, but you don't hear about it, but it's happening in other countries. The church is experiencing persecution. There's elements of the church today in America that's experiencing some persecution. There is more and more antichrist, plural, that's rising up against the church and what we stand for. 
and against Christ than ever before. So in light of the many troubles and tribulations that we face, even here in America, and in light of the fact that it could grow worse, we don't know God's timing. What should we do? And I've given, you know, this is not a typical expository message, but I've given you some things that the scripture says, how we're to live, what we're to do as believers. <coughs> so, should, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I promise again, just like last week, it's allergies. I've had this, if I've had COVID, it, it's been for like 10 weeks, so I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's allergies. <coughs> So how should we live? What should we do in light of the troubles? Life is trouble. We're living in a sinful, corrupt world. We struggle sometimes to get along amongst ourselves. We have debates and disagreements, and sometimes people aren't gracious. Sometimes I'm not gracious like I ought to be. And so we have a life of troubles and hardships and persecutions sometimes. Sadness, heartbreak, pain. It's the world that we live in. And it's hard sometimes. So what should we do as a church, as believers? I think I have 11 things, and we'll just run through these. Be ready for his appearing. Be ready to stand before God who is perfectly holy, who will judge righteously. Peter said this, and he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So Peter said that he was ordered to preach that Christ was the one appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. See, judgment is coming, but those that have forgiveness in Christ will receive reward because of Christ, not because we're good, not because we are righteous in ourselves, but because he is good and he is gracious and he's merciful. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. So in light of who Christ is and that his kingdom is coming, he's going to be the judge of the living and the dead. Paul told Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, reprove. Rebuke, exhort with all patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will not turn aside to mess. Seems like we're living in that day, doesn't it? But we're to be faithful to preach the word, regardless of the response of people. We preach the word of the living God. We declare him to be Lord of heaven and earth, the judge of the living and the dead. We keep preaching the gospel. We keep being faithful. We keep proclaiming the truth, no matter if people believe it or not. We're always faithful. We tell people to be ready for the Lord. 
be ready to meet him. We may not be here when he returns, but we're going to stand before him. 1 Peter 5, 4, Peter said concerning the ungodly, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See, we need to be ready to stand before the Lord. And it's only in Christ that we can stand. It's only by his grace that he died for us, that he bore the sins of everyone that would ever believe. He took our sins upon himself. He was resurrected from the dead the third day. And because of that, we have life, we have forgiveness, we have peace. We can know him. We can walk with him in newness of life. If you don't know Christ, you're not ready for the second coming of Christ. The second thing is this, set your minds on things above. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, chapter 3, verses 2 through 4, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Don't get so focused on this world. Focus on heavenly things. Focus on what really matters, what's really true, on spiritual things. You know what I find... I'm a researcher, and I love to try to figure out what's going on behind the scenes. And I, I'll be honest, I can't always figure it. As a matter of fact, I can't usually figure it out. I get glimpses here and there of maybe what's going on in the world. I'm curious. I'm just, that's me. But you know what? I can become so focused on those things that my focus is not on the Lord and on heavenly things. We need to be focused on the things of the Lord, the things that really matter, things that will count for eternity. Amen. Recognize also, as you do that, not a, not a separate point, but don't forget that you're citizens of heaven. In one sense, you're not an American citizen or Romanian citizen or South African citizen maybe in a worldly sense, but our citizenship is in heaven, and that's what matters. Number three, glorify God with holy conduct. First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which war or wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. There's the they again. We need to be holy before God. We need to live to be holy, trusting in God's strength. And it's not some list of do's and don'ts. It's not legalism. That means nothing. It doesn't make you holy. Even the law did not make the Jews holy. It's walking in the Spirit. If you know Christ, walk in the Spirit. Minute by minute, moment by moment, obey Him. Be led by the Spirit of God. The one that always points to Christ. That's the Spirit of God. He points us to Christ. Number four, make disciples. 
1 Thessalonians 2, 19. Listen, listen to what Paul writes here. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you, you believers, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. You know, that ought to be our glory, to lead people to Christ, disciple them, to teach them to walk in the ways of the Lord, knowing the importance to proclaim the truth of God and his grace and mercy to everyone that we possibly can. Number five, humble yourself and submit to your authorities. First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Peter writes, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. We need to obey our authorities. And I know we're living in a complicated day. You know, sometimes we have some authorities telling us to do one thing and others telling us to do something else. But to the best of our ability, for God's glory, to silence evil, foolish men, we need to be submissive to our authorities. God is the one that institutes government and even church authorities. God's sovereign. Nobody's in a position by accident. We can think we voted somebody into office, but they're there by the will of God ultimately. That's what the Bible teaches. <clears throat> Number six, be ready to suffer. That's not one we want to hear, but we need to be ready. First Peter chapter 2, listen to the words of Peter again, verse 20 through 24. For what credit is there if... When you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. <laughs> you got what you deserve, right? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose. I've been called to suffer? That's exactly what it's saying. For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins and his own body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. He's fine. Oh, I didn't see the guitar. <laughs> he wasn't bothering me, though. Uh Christ suffered. He didn't revile. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself 
to him who judges righteously. What if persecution comes strongly in this country? What are we going to do as believers? We must entrust ourselves to God who judges righteously. There's coming a day he'll make all things right. We wait upon him. We don't try to institute righteousness, judgment upon our enemies. We wait upon God. Persevere under persecution. Sort of the same idea here. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 12 through 14. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord, out of them all, excuse me, the Lord rescued me. Listen to what he says. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing that, knowing from whom you have learned them. We must persevere. Real saving faith perseveres. It's the evidence. It's the proof of saving faith. No matter the circumstance, no matter what happens, true saving faith perseveres. And we certainly can recognize that even our hardships and our persecutions do not separate us from the love of Christ. Remember the words of Paul? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is, just as it is written, Psalm 44:22. For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, but in all these things we are overwhelmingly, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We're victorious through Christ. Doesn't matter what comes our way. It doesn't indicate that we've been separated from the love of God or that God has turned his back upon us. Persecution is not an indication of those things. So be ready for persecution. Polycarp, the overseer of the church at Smyrna, in 160 A.D., stood before his accuser, who asked him, or said to him, Reproach Christ, and I will set you free. Polycarp declared, Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Just before Polycarp was burned at the stake, he lifted his eyes toward heaven and he prayed, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creature, and of all the righteousness who the righteous, excuse me, who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy 
to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. To you, with him, through the Holy Spirit, be glory now and forever. Amen. Or so be it. And he was burned at the stake. No hesitation. He counted God faithful. Be ready for persecution. This should be true of Christians throughout church history. It has been a part of church history. Number eight, do good to all men, especially those who are in the household of faith. Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. You know, we need to work hard to meet our needs, our family's needs, but also that, so that we can share with others. That's part of the reason that believers should work hard and accumulate to have resources. Paul said this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. That's the way we as believers ought to be. You know, when we go to work and we work, we ought to do it heartily. We ought to do it as unto the Lord. We ought to work hard so that we're meeting our own needs, our family's needs, so that we don't have to depend on others because we're able, but also so that we can share with others and help others. One of the greatest blessings in the Christian life is to share with others, to meet other needs for those that have legitimate needs. We ought to be intentional about helping one another, especially in the body of Christ. Working hard so that we're not a burden to others, putting away, laying aside. Remember the example in Proverbs chapter 6 of the ant? He said, don't be like a sluggard, basically. Be like an ant who has no captain, no overseer, no ruler, but faithfully gathers during the harvest. That's what we're to be as Christians. We're to be hard workers. Work hard when we have the opportunity so that not only can we provide for ourselves, but we can help others. But doing good to all men involves much more than helping others with food or finances. Number eight, and this is so, each of these points, it'd be easy to do several sermons on each one. So I hope you'll think about them. But do not forsake the assembling together. Hebrews 10, and let us consider, consider, here's the context, verse 24 of that passage that we're familiar with. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. <clears throat> Not forsaking our own assembling together, 
as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So it's not just being proactive and being prepared to meet other people's physical or material needs, financial needs, it's spiritual needs as well. Being ready to know the scripture so that we can share the gospel with those that need to hear the gospel. So that we can encourage that the context here is to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So we can encourage one another, motivate one another to be proactive in spiritual work, in loving others, in doing good things for the glory of God. Number 10, there's actually 12 of these. Be content with whatever state you find yourself. Philippians 4.11, Paul says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Or Yes, circumstances I am. Now, Paul was referring to financial things here, but it's certainly applicable to every circumstance that we find ourselves. Be content. If you're being persecuted, don't try to escape it necessarily. I mean, nobody wants to be persecuted. But whatever state you find yourself in, be content. Accept it as the will of God. Accept it. Remember God's sovereign. It's not easy to say this, but in light of God's will, there's a sense in which we're exactly where we're supposed to be. Trust God. Be content. You're where God wants you. Number 11, do not expect justice from this world system. Solomon, Ecclesiastes 3.16, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. Ecclesiastes teaches us all is vanity. This world is a cycle of sinful people. People are born, people live in a sinful world, do sinful things, and die. And we're not even remembered. Most people are not remembered. A few generations later, people won't have any idea who I am. But the point here is this. There will not be justice as long as sinful man has anything to do with the justice system. We could ask ourselves, could we improve the laws? Nobody would argue that we need better laws. We can always improve the laws. But in doing so, remember this. The nation of Israel were under the perfect laws, the standard of God. The problem wasn't the laws. It was the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls. Number two, we could change leadership. Black Lives Matter states on their website that they're seeking power. But remember, again, all men are sinners. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. So in essence, a change in leadership is just a change from one group of sinners to another. Even if a committed Christian became president, 
he's still a sinning saint, and he will make some bad decisions. And by the way, the government is a lot bigger than a president. There will not be justice until Jesus Christ returns. Folks, the King of kings and Lord of lords will return someday, and he is a just king. He is perfectly righteous, and he will bring justice. Listen to the words of John in Revelation chapter 19, 11 through 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dripped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on the white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thighs he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God will bring justice one day. Stop looking for it in this world, in any president, in any government. It will not happen. We're sinful creatures. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. He will rule and reign with a rod of iron. Be sure today that you will stand before him clothed in his righteousness, trusting in his dear son, for there is no other hope under heaven whereby we must be saved. It's only in Jesus Christ. I pray that you will look to him Turn from your sinful ways. Have a change of heart about your sinful ways and look to Christ if you don't know him. I've tried to give you a few thoughts. Most of these relate in some way to the second coming. All of them relate to how we should live as believers. What should Cornerstone Church be focused on? What should we be all about? These 12 things, there's more, there's definitely more, but this is a good synopsis of the things that we need to be doing in light of the world that we're living in, in light of reality and the truth of God, and in light of his second coming. He will return. It may not be exactly how we think it's going to be. It might, we might be misinterpreting some things, but he's going to return because he's faithful, and he will judge He will bring judgment on the wicked and reward to the righteous, those that have his righteousness, not their own, but his righteousness in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for truth. 
Lord, your son, Jesus Christ, is truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. We know that no one comes to you, God, except through him. Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts. God, may we be mindful of your coming. May we look to you for justice and righteousness. God, thank you that we can stand before you today righteous all because of you and your grace and mercy. We give you praise this day. May we walk out of this room loving one another, serving you, God, being a testimony for you, focused on the things that matter, all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. We did this song a few weeks ago uh, when, when Rusty preached on Romans 3. And this is actually based off of Romans 3, chapter verse 9 through 26. And I'll let you guys read that on your own time. It's pretty lengthy. But um, the title speaks for itself. Our only hope is in you, is you, speaking of Christ. So let us sing. Oh, when 
for joining us. It's nice to have a packed room. I know it's not a huge, huge room, but it's good to have a packed room. It's good that we could be back together again. And thank you, each of you that are visiting us online. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join us this morning. And hopefully we can all be back together again soon. I'll leave you with this scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. For by grace... You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God hath prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May God Bless you. Thank you.